Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. The Torah section called Ve'etachanan, which means, and I pleaded, covers their Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 23, through chapter 7, verse 11. And we picked up the uh, Shabbat Nachamu uh, section, which covered Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 through 26, so for the Sabbath of comforts. And we also picked up uh, Matthew 23, verses 31 through 39, and also Hebrews 13, 1 through 21. And you can see all the various studies that we've done on um, these passages in years past in at uh, hallel.info slash p45, because uh, this is a particular section when there's lots of details, so we're not going to be able to get to all of them, but we've covered them in years past. Now, one of the, the pictures you see here, uh, this is one we took, several years ago uh, at the Mount Alyeska in Alaska, and it shows there the tram, which goes from the uh, hotel at the bottom to the top of the mountain, which is a ski resort. And that's where we got the uh, verse that we read earlier today in Deuteronomy 13, verse 4 which is going to be in a couple of Torah readings in the Torah reading Re'ah, but it actually really applies to this section as well. And it'll be uh, a focal point for where we're going to zero in in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy in our study here today. It says here, You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments and listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. So cling like a cable car clinging to the cable that will carry you up the hill. Yes. So, some big ideas that we have here on our particular section here today. So, just as we saw in the first section, our first reading here at Devarim, which uh, covered the first three chapters and a little bit of into the chapter 3 through verse 22, we saw it's like a travel log of all the journeys. These are the journeys of the people of Israel as they traveled and went from the land of bondage into the land of freedom and all the stops that they made on the way. And here it continues on with that. And in particular, it makes reference to <laughs> Numbers 33 with the account of Masa and Meribah. And we also see that this includes and an account this first address to that second generation of Israel that's going to go into the land. But some themes that are going to continue on throughout all of the book of Deuteronomy. And I hope you've got a copy of that uh, outline that we, we had that available last week, the outline of Deuteronomy. So it's something to be helpful to refer to each time as we go through these sections. But remember where we came from and where we're going. From the house of bondage to the promised land, the land of promise, the land of rest, the land of freedom. 
So going from that house of bondage to the land of freedom. Remember why you left our way of life outside the kingdom. So if we think about being out of the land, why did we leave? And we might say, well, we were born out of the kingdom. We were born in a family that wasn't very interested into the kingdom. We left the kingdom. We left the kingdom of God and decided to go our own way for a while. For whatever reason, remember why it is we left our way of life that was outside of the kingdom. Why were we in chains in our house of bondage? And then the most important thing is remember who took us out of our house of bondage. Who took us out of the house of bondage and who carried us through and is going to carry us into the land of freedom. It is extremely important to remember that because that is a key part of these warnings that we saw in our particular passage here today. So so, some other big ideas, and you'll see that reflected in a few passages of what we looked at here today, and we'll see them again throughout the book of, of Devarim or Deuteronomy. So basically cling to the Lord with all of our hearts, our lives, and our resources. That's the center part of the Shema, Hero Israel, that we say every Shabbat from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And that we see in, in a particular aspect of the Shema that the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Christ, is the end of the law or as it should be translated, the telos of the law, like a telescope. You look and you see from afar, and you bring the things that are far off, and you bring them close. That's what a telescope does. So for telos is showing you the destination. So that is what we see through the words of God, is we see the destination of where we're going. And when we look through God's words, our telos is the Mashiach, because the Mashiach is the one who gives us the rest, to takes us into the kingdom of God, takes us over. So, and then with these instructions, it's very important that we pass these on from generation to generation to generation, because that is our legacy in the people of Israel. It's been handed to us, either from our parents or from friends or somebody around us, maybe somebody we didn't know who passed the legacy of Israel on to us, but also those who meticulously kept guarded, safeguarded the words of God so that we're not just victim to some guru coming along to tell us what they think God is like. And that will change from day to day or guru to guru. No, we have the direct testimony of who the creator of heaven and earth is like. And the direct testimony of why we should not want to stay in a house of bondage, why we want to leave, and why we want to go to the place, the land of rest. And thus, as a part of this also, remember what it means to be a holy or a made separate people. Heaven makes us separate from the world, not because of how fantastic we are. That's one of the last things we saw in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. And we remember how what it means to be a holy, a set-apart people, and how that happens, and 
why it is happening. Why do we want to be set apart? Wouldn't it be just better to be, quote, relevant and just wallow in everything of the world with, with everybody else? I mean, there is actually a subset heresy. It's uh, come down to be known as Rasputinism after the Rasputin character of, of uh, um, Tsarist Russia, where that idea, and it came down into modern times with David Koresh of the Branch Davidians, where it basically, no, Yeshua was not a good Messiah because he didn't wallow in the muck like everybody else did. We are a more perfect Messiah because we know the depths of depravity. We have, we have gone to those depths, so we understand it better. So that is a heresy known as Rasputinism, or you could say Koreshism now, as that's come to be known. So, and then one of the things we're going to see through starting here in this particular Torah section and going through most of the, all the way up through chapter 26 is an explanation. We saw it in our first reading there in Devarim and said Moshe opened his mouth to expound upon or to elucidate or to explain the words of God, the commandments of God. So that is a part of what these, these great messages are, to explain the Ten Commandments and how these Ten Commandments are applied in everyday life. So those are some of the big ideas of where we're at. So one of the, just to hit a couple of highlights and where we're going with this. Uh, so in Deuteronomy chapter 4, listen to the statutes and judgments. Be a witness in the world. Be a witness in the world because the world is watching. The world is watching. They say, okay, these rules, they may sound good. Maybe there's something itching at, at their hearts to say, hey, these words are words of life. Well, how are they expounded and lived out through the people? That's a hugely important part of that. So then in chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5, we get the second telling for that second generation of the Ten Commandments. We get them again, the redo of them. And one of the most significant differences is in the fourth commandment, the fourth commandment, the Ten of the Ten Commandments, otherwise known as the Shabbat commandment. So one of the significant things, and the difference is for the first generation, they are told, do this because why? Because I am the one who did what? Created. I am the creator. For in six days I created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. So thus, because I created in six days and then rest on the seventh, so you work for seven days or six days and then rest on the seventh. But for the second generation, what is it? Because I took you out of the land. I freed you. So thus you see, it is not only because he is the creator that you work and stop, work and rest, but because he is the redeemer, he is the freer, the liberator. So thus, that is another reason for the Shabbat, to remember who freed you from your land of bondage, 
Who is going to bring you into the land of life? And who is sustaining you through your period in between? The in between, your house of bondage and your land of freedom. Who is sustaining you throughout all that? And in chapter 6, we get the heart of the matter, the Shema, and that's what we talked about. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. That means, you know, your mind, your emotions, all of that, with all of your soul, your, your nefesh, your life, and all of your ma'ed, or your strength. All of that, all of that combined is what it means to love the Lord. And as we saw as we were prefaced to that in chapter 4 and chapter 5, it is you love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and your strength. You cling to him. That is a part of what that means. And we may think, oh, lovey-dovey, just love, 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 all lovey-dovey stuff. But what that means is to cling on to through the good, through the bad, through all of that. Yes, love is a verb indeed. And again, just like what we mentioned just here recently, that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, a very important message is that the Lord is choosing Israel, not because of how special and precious and just wonderful she is. So the Lord looked out into all the earth and said, wow, those people, they're they're the biggest people, they're the mightiest people, the richest people, and said, I'm going to pick them. No. That's a reminder that this was something that was based upon a promise. And as we roll the tape back, and it talks about this promise, the promise, the covenant, the, the contract that was done between heaven and earth and done with Avraham, with Yitzhak, with Yaakov, and especially because of that promise that he made a promise to Avraham and to Sarah at that time, hey, I am going to give you a son. This great promise of all the world is going to come through you too. No, not through YouTube. There's a lot of terrible things that come through YouTube, but a lot of good things too. So it's, uh, yes, it needs a lot of discernment in there, but it's going to come through the two of them. Through those two, and as it talks about in the book of Hebrews, you know, it's like, hey, they were as good as dead because of how old they were. They were past the point of having children, and that they were said, you are going to have the promise that this blessing for all the world is going to come through the two of you, yet it didn't look like that was going to be able to happen, and thus we saw they were going to give God a hand. And thus, you had that whole thing of bringing in uh, Sarah's servant, Hagar, to give God some help and bring the children through her. So, and thus, you get the discussion in the book of Galatians. Hey, this was the work of the flesh, the work of people trying to do in their strength to make God's 
um, promise his salvation happened through their strength. But no, it was going to come through. It was going to be the child of promise. Uh, Larry, you've got a question or a comment over there. Helping, trying to help there. I'm trying to help, Almost yes. as bad as Adam, really. <laughs> yes. the, but the trouble that it's caused since then, Yes, the whole world is divided amongst those two siblings, that's those two children of Abraham. Yes, between two children of Abraham have, have caused, that of course, accounts Adam for, did, made yeah. it possible for that to happen. The humans are tuned that way. So, yeah. What I, did I say what Adam did made it so that we're tuned that way? But. <laughs> Yes, uh, Deborah. Um, you know, a lot of times we do things and we don't even know we've made a mistake until it's already been done. I mean, you can uh, do, like, they did that. They didn't really, I don't think they prethan they thought he said that. So maybe, you know, they were, must have been left to their own devices. But, um, you know, many times we do things and then thank God for these writings because uh, the things that they did, and there's a scripture that says, you know, these were for our admonishment. Yeah, these are for us because, um, I mean, we're going to be held to a higher a standard because they didn't have everything in a book and writing. So we, we have all that before our eyes. We read this. We know that. Um, and we act like we know that. And we show up here. But, you know, uh, the, um, once of our little rabbis, she teaches that um, the closer you get to God, the more uh, we're accountable and the more trouble we can be in because we can't say, well, I didn't know. And sometimes I, it seems even though I say that, I don't really realize the ramifications of that is that, you know, you do know and you are still, you know. So I just, you know, I, I thank God that, you know, these writings are here for us, that we're so blessed to be able to, you know, and they want to know that people go to um, seances and they talk to the dead. Here's a book that will tell you with proper understanding, God is so mysterious. I love him because I love mysteries anyway. That he, if we keep studying, there's layers of layers of this Bible that he gives us, you know? And I mean, it's so amazing. You think, well, I'm done. I've read the Bible <laughs> once a year for 20 years. You're not going to be done. There is always something. And it's like your eyes are covered. And just like when people were banging on the door to get into Lot, you know, they couldn't see. And Christ, remember, he went right through the people when he was, they were going to throw him off the mountain. And there's things that we just don't see. And things are going on right before our very eyes. We don't even know it. For all we know, a myriad of angels are watching us, us little tiny little group. You know, and I think, God, we're just so little here. We're, there's no more in this town of our group. How can there only be this many? You know? Yeah. Something's going on. Yeah. Each, each of us have our own little sphere of influence on that. So one of the things we'll take a look at closer in here today is in chapter 4, where we're taking a look at you know, listening to the statutes and the judgments. And specifically, there in uh, chapter 4, verse 31, that section that talks about he will not fail you. So basically, you see this, this account, this oath, this promise that heaven is not going to drop us or basically let a go of us, let go of us, no matter what happens because of the promise to Avraham and Jacob specifically, but through the patriarchs and down through the descendants. Now, why is that? 
it is because Israel is the lifeline for the world. It's heaven's lifeline for the world to transform the world, to bring the world in. So let's take a look at this a little bit closer. And especially this passage here, it starts out in chapter 4, verse 29, and goes through, uh, through verse 31. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all of your hearts and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God, and he will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. So one of the things we see in chapter 4 is that we have to remember where it is that we've come from, who delivered us, and so that we are not ensnared by the practices of the people that are already in the land and of the surrounding nations. We don't import that stuff in. And we see, in particular, as described in this passage, that you don't take notice of the things and the practices and say, hey, we want to kind of mix those in and uh, see how they worship their deities and just bring those in and import them in because it's a fun practice or it's kind of interesting. You mix those things together. But one of the things that you, you know through various experiences is that when you do mix things together, what tends to lose? You start to lose the word of God in the process. So that's the instructions. Hey, be careful with your marriages together. You'll see the Apostle Paul later talking about being unequally yoked. You see that was an issue and in Ezra and Nehemiah when they were reestablishing and bringing the remnant back again and just saying, hey, these marriages were not helpful, these mixed marriages of people who have a different ideology. You know, people focus on ethnicity today. Ethnicity doesn't mean bunk. It doesn't. Because you can have people have completely different ethnicities and they will have more in common with people who have the same ideology or you're thinking the same things, have the same thoughts, have the same values, beliefs. And it doesn't matter what language you're speaking, what ethnicity you are, you will have more in common with people who have the same ideals, thoughts. Then you can get people together of the same ethnicity, but if they've got wildly different ideas and stuff, you really don't have much in common with them. So thus, the issue is not one of ethnicity, of they were just foreign-born, foreigners. No, it was, what do you hold on to? Because early on in Israel's history, you'll see of the mixed multitude that came out of Mitzrayim together, you'll see Moshe's wife, Zipporah, a foreigner. You'll see one of the lineage of the Mashiach, of Messiah, Rahab, foreigner. Foreigner, 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 foreigner. 
Roots, yes. Another foreigner. And there is argument out there that Kalev was a foreigner as well. So you'll see one of the two that were going to lead, the, that of that first generation that survived to lead in the second generation, one of them was a foreigner. It did not matter that he was a foreigner. Who did he cleave to? Who did he cling on to? And that was the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth. That is who he clinged on to. So it didn't matter what his background was. It mattered where his future was. And he saw that future in the kingdom of God. So that's, you see also in Deuteronomy chapter 4, that if Israel was going to get ensnared, she would be removed from the land. This wasn't just because of, as it reiterates there in chapter 7, because of how wonderful you are that you're being given the land. And, you know, we willed it and it happened. No, it's that you didn't follow along with the will, the direction, the leading of the one who brought you into this land of rest. And thus, you are going to stay there and be this beacon for the entire world to say, hey, there is a different way to go in the world. You don't have to follow these practices, throwing your children into the fires of Molech. No, you don't have to do that. There is a far better way. The one who created the babies, that is the one that you need to follow. So, one of the things that would be warned for Israel, okay, if you do follow after the nations, they would be scattered just like the nations that they were dispossessing that were in the land before. They would be scattered as well, but not forgotten like those nations before. Like, for example, in the passage that we read at the beginning of Deuteronomy, it lists all, all kinds of nations that were there before. We have no idea who these people are. Some of them have no record whatsoever, no, nothing we've ever dug up that had any sort of indication of who they are. So just to get modern scholars will say, well, they, it was a mythology. They didn't never exist it. No, they just disappeared without a trace. So the only knowledge that we have of them is what's written in the Bible. Similar to with the Sadducees. Sadducees, they existed, but you pretty much have no clue of what their teachings were other than what's in the Gospels and a passing reference in Josephus of who they were and what they believed. It was gone. They just disappeared. We know they existed, but who they were, what they believed, pretty much gone. So, the one thing that was going to keep Israel from being forgotten when they forgot God and then God scattered them into the nations around to basically as a discipline to say, hey, do you remember what it is that you had? You know, the old saying, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Well, do you know what you had when you lost it? Or are you just being tossed back and forth out into the world, not knowing why anything is happening to you? No clue as to why things are happening. But you have the word of God that is actually planted within them, planted from generation to generation. 
that is going to be that call that's going to come back. The Spirit of God is going to call to you to come back. So what is it that is going to take root within you to restore this relationship that you have with the one who delivered you out? So continuing on with this and looking at here in Deuteronomy 4, verse 31, he will not fail you. Fail, translated from Rafa. Now, Rafa, yes, our healer. But another way that you could also, um, it's a, you could say this is one of those uh, Hebrew homonyms. Homonyms are words that you know, are spelled exactly the same way, but they have different meanings here. And here's another one of Rafa with Resh, He, and He, where this one is used to talk about letting go, to sink down, to drop, to be disheartened. Another lexicon has it as abandon or desert or to forsake. And also, it is used to talk about the Rephidim. We encountered Rephidim in a passing mention in our last Torah reading. They were one of the previous inhabitants of the east bank of the Yarden River. They were there before. Who they were? I don't know. They're gone. They, but they're noted as, you could say, the, the fallen ones. And also, they talk about the people that go on before are talked also about as Rephidim or the fallen ones, those that have just dropped out of existence. So that is the message to Israel. You are not going to drop out of existence. God is not going to let go of you. It may look like, and you may think that you've dropped out of existence, but not really. So one of the, the Lord's promise to Yaakov in that vision of the ladder that we saw back in Genesis, that this ladder between heaven and earth was about loyalty, and that was this promise, the promises that were going to be, there was going to be loyalty between heaven and earth through Avraham, to Yitzhak, to Yaakov, to his sons, to the whole world, this loyalty was going to come. And that loyalty through whatever he would face until, in this case, the promise that's being referred to in this particular passage is he would return, his descendants would return to the land. Now we know all the things that happened between this vision of the Jacob's ladder, and when his descendants would be going back into the land. In fact, that's what we're reading about here today is the descendants going back into the land again. And also, when you see that this is something that talks about times to come as well, that they would come back into the land. So in Genesis 28, verse 15, it says, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you. Wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So that again is our word Rafa used again. I will not leave you. Let you go. I will not leave you hanging, as they say. So that promise that this land would be given to the inhabitants and fulfilled and a return to the land, you know, multiple times. So moving on again, we see this particular promise is said another time 
even in Moshe's address, one of his final addresses there in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, that he reminds them that the Lord wouldn't let go of them. The second generation coming out, because his promise was he was going to take them from the land of bondage into the land of promise. And that land of promise was made to their ancestors, to Avraham, to Yitzhak, to Yaakov. And that promise would be fulfilled. And then that promise would be fulfilled again and again when, as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 4, people forgot, forgot their healer, forgot the one who had a hold of them. They didn't cling to the Lord who brought them out and brought them in. So in Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. So a warning to that second generation, don't be like the first generation who after they sent the spies into the land, they saw giants. They saw big walls. They saw overwhelming odds that was, were going to crush them. And they worried, all of our children are going to die. All of our children. We want to protect our children. So we, we can't do this. It is just going to be a disaster. So to the second generation, hey, trust the one who brought you this far is going to take you then into land. So, a promise is, is that not only would the Lord not let go of Israel, but he would also go with Israel. Because remember, one of the things, the key things that the Lord had said after the golden calf, which was a, an incredible affront to the Lord, to do that at the base of the mountain where his presence was, the Lord said, I'm not going to go with them. But Moshe interceded and said, if you won't go with us, then what? Blot me out of your book. Even though I had nothing to do with this, if you won't go with us, blot me out of your book. Just basically dump all your wrath on me and I would take it. But he said, okay. The Lord said, I will go with you. And you move on and you, you take the tape going of tape of Israel and fast forward a little bit to the time of Yehoshua. Yehoshua chapter 1, verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moshe, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. So again, the words of, I will not let go of you. I will not drop you. I will not turn my back upon you, leave you hanging. Um, yes, Larry, do you have a comment or a question? Well, I was just thinking that <clears throat> it would have been pointless to go on anyway if he didn't go with them. They would, they would <laughs> yeah. never have, even, even though he didn't succeed, really, they would have still been even worse. Mm. Yeah. They would have just completely disappeared like the other people you were yes. talking about. Oh, yeah. Yep. We're to become a byword, as, as it says. Oh, Alex, uh, go ahead, please. Yeah, uh, can you hear me? I have yes. my special earbuds on. Yes, go ahead. Wow, you sound yeah. very authoritative. Um, go ahead. 
Oh, these are bows. You can anyway. Oh, wow. Yeah, the whole disappearing thing. I mean, uh, having read a lot about Phoenicians, we wouldn't know very much at all about that uh, long and successful uh, uh, culture if it wasn't for the Greeks and the Romans. Apparently, We've got, yes, they they wrote everything on papyrus. They were busy making money. They didn't really build monuments. And uh, again, the fascinating thing is that the Israelites who didn't do build monuments and all are remembered only only a god could do something like that uh they're remembered uh, and yeshua better than anybody and uh it's a combination um that keeps people or, or makes people remember you i mean these other tribes uh, disappearing is nothing new uh, that's probably the rule not the exception yeah and in, indeed well one of the the interesting things you might think of the phoenicians and we, we see in particular from the um, prophecy through Ezekiel is that uh, the Lord tired of them because of their self-sufficiency. Yes, and you see in very interesting sort of turnabouts, you think, well, who is the center of all influence in the world? You would think Phoenicia. We hear about them. They were a great... They were great traders, they merchants, they would take stuff all over the Mediterranean. I mean, they were able to facilitate all kinds of movement of goods all over the place. But the point was, is that you see in the book of Ezekiel that Israel became a byword. They became just a client, a client state of Phoenicia, of Tyre. So... Thus, their distinctiveness, instead of Israel, yes, lost the flavor. Their salt lost its flavor. Instead of Israel being an influence on Tyre, no, Tyre influenced Israel and became just as corrupt as Phoenicia was. But unlike Phoenicia, which, as Alex was noting, yeah, became a byword except for other people mentioning it. No, Israel would be preserved even in exile, except you might recall what we always talk about the lost tribes, that the northern tribes did largely go out and were not heard from. Again, you get little wisps of throughout history, little... You say breadcrumbs of what, what happened to them and their influence. And their influence did go out into the world. But for an entire society, entire culture, largely not known of where they went. And you just pray that eventually there would be the calling out. But that influence did go out into the world. So you might say perhaps some advanced... Um, we call it evangelism or the evangelical approach of just getting the message out into the world so that there would be some knowledge of God out into the world. And perhaps then you had those that did realize why they were scattered into the world and did remember where they came from. Uh, Anne, you have a comment or a uh, question over there. <laughs> the Qumran cave. Yes, the Qumran caves, yes. Right, and the scrolls, I mean, without the Levites doing their job of 
of making it making it into yes. the Torah. Yeah, so you had some scribes that that did preserve large sections, especially of the book of Isaiah. That was a one that was um almost entirely intact. That's quite a quite a blessing there with that. So moving on a little bit further, passage we had looked at earlier in Hebrews chapter thirteen. And at the beginning part of it in verse one, it talks about may the love of the brethren. Now, we even have a city in the United States, the birthplace of the United States. The birthplace of it. No, not Texas. Philadelphia, which the Greek word means the brotherly love. Philos, and where that comes from. Phileo. And that brotherly love is the encapsulation of the various things in this chapter. So, what are some of the things that are reminders in this particular chapter? To remember hospitality to strangers. And it gives a passing mention, you may be entertaining angels. Well, that's a good little reference back to Lot there. Because, you know, one of the key things is about hospitality, but then also about corruption and about uh, hatred of outsiders and cliquishness. There's all kinds of things wrong in Sodom and Gomorrah, or you could say the Sodom metropolitan area, which included all the cities of the plain that were that were uh, taken taken up. Uh, Larry, I'm sorry, you have your hand up. Oh, he's just waving your hands. <laughs> yes, Philadelphia. The Israelites, as far as being true to its name. City of brotherly love. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's, it's, it's one of those things that you might say, yeah, not, not today. <laughs> not in, in modern, uh, modern times, Philadelphia has definitely gone from being the city of brotherly love. But you can say one of the aspects, yes. Yeah, but uh, the originally founding of this country at least had some sort of... Uh, allegiance to uh to the lord to varying degrees another thing in, in romans chapter 13 is a reminder about prisoners and those who were ill-treated so brotherly love okay rem remember hospitality to strangers because remember you were strangers in a strange land and the lord picked you up and brought you into your own home so then also Prisoners and those who are being ill-treated. Remember, Israel, you were prisoners in Egypt. You were ill-treated in Egypt. You were ill-treated in exile. Remember that when you have people around you who are prisoners and are ill-treated. What did you feel like when you were in that position? So thus, be heaven's hand in, hands and feet and help. Then also about guarding marriage. So you, Israel, had uh, lapses with your with your fidelity to uh, your husband, the the Lord. So then, remember from that lesson. Remember the lesson of Israel: be loyal in marriage, and that as a sign. You know, it's kind of like in concentric circles from the home and the fidelity out, 
be a witness within your home, within your family, between husband and wife. Then be a witness in your community of that kind of loyalty. Then be a witness out into the greater society around you of that bond, that loyalty, the fidelity between the two of you. And then also remember contentment. Remember to be content with what you have. So the passage there from Hebrews 13, 5, and 6. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So quotations there from Deuteronomy 4.31 and also in Psalm 118, verse 6, which Psalm 119, as you might recall, has lots of messianic prophecies within it. It's just rich with a foreshadowing of the mission of the Messiah including the one we looked at today in Matthew 23 about, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a key passage that a foretelling of the Messiah in that particular passage. So that thus when we look about this, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, that is a familial that familial love, loyalty within a family, like within a marriage. So thus, when the Lord is saying, I will not forsake you, I will not drop you, I will not let you go. So thus, when you have this posture, however we have it, of praise and prayer, that we are reaching out to the Lord and remembering that he has been reaching out to us, to all humanity, through all kinds of ways down through time, through the patriarchs, through all these leaders, prophets that they've sent, and then especially through the Mashiach. So you see another example of this in John chapter 17, and this is part of that message, the final discourse that Yeshua is having with his students. And his prayer in the midst of his having his prayer, that he's praying for believers, and now he's praying for his closest students. And this uh, specifically is in verses 11 and 12. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them has perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So we see this is really a continuation with what you see through the prophets, especially you see in prophet Jeremiah, talks a lot about shepherds. <laughs> talks about the bad shepherds, and talks about the good shepherd, and foreshadowing the great good shepherd. So when Yeshua is talking about, I am the good shepherd, he's drawing from the prophets and saying, there would be a good shepherd who would come, who wouldn't scatter the flock, but gather the flock, gather the flock, bring them in to protect them, to guard them, 
to not let go one of them. That's the, the verse that we say every week about, hey, if there is one who's lost, the good shepherd will leave the 99 that are found and go after the one which is lost. And then bring the sheep that is lost in to the flock. Because you see a similar thing as we're going through the uh, letter to the Romans there in our Tuesday study. We're going through that particular section of Romans 9 through 11. And one of the great uh, climaxes or key high points of this particular passage is that once those that have been blinded in Israel, once that blinding purposely from heaven is removed, then those that are called will come in. And then what? All Israel will be saved and collected. So thus, you see that promise of, I will not let you go. I will not drop you. I will not just, uh, like, oh, all right, this is just too much work and just let, let you go. No. When heaven grabs hold, that hold is going to last and last and last. Not as fickle as we are. We get tired, we get bored, and just let it go. Too much trouble, too much inconvenience. Now, that is especially not what you see. So one of the key things that we see related to this, and we we go over this uh, often when we get around to Hanukkah time, because remember again, the Hanukkah, or the Festival of Dedication, was a, another pinnacle moment where Israel was facing an existential crisis. At that point, you had this potentate, this Antiochus IV, that was dictating, we, you're not going to practice. No Torah, no nothing related to the Torah, nothing. And if you do those practices, we'll execute you. So you see in the, in the apocryphal books of the Maccabees, it records some of the horrendous things that were happening of persecution of those who did hold on to the words of God in the process. So that is the legacy of Hanukkah. So when you see this particular passage mentioned in John chapter 10 in the Gospels, and he is, Yeshua is in the temple on the festival of dedication. This is in the back of everyone's minds. What was the crisis of that Hanukkah? In that case, it was about roughly 150 years earlier. What was the, the issue? The issue was you had to choose, are you going to follow this one who sets himself up in the house of God and says, hey, I am... I'm now God, takes away the sacrifice, puts a pig on the altar, brings in the trappings of various deities into the house of God, says, well, whatever you worship before, that's now gone. This is your God. Now you are going to worship this. So thus, when you say to all of Israel, you think of Israel at that point, it was an existential crisis because if you are brothers and sisters in the world face this even today, if you're in North Korea, if you're in a number of countries in the Middle East and in Northern Africa, you, fa- you face this all the time. 
in China, you face this quite often, where you will have your government or some sort of terrorist group or whatever that will say, if you follow the ways of a different God, we are going to execute you. So do you favor your life? Do you want to save your neck? Well, then bend your neck, bow. Do subservience to this deity, not the creator of heaven and earth. So that is a, quite the crisis for the people of God. What are you going to do? And Maccabees records what has happened many times when this has been faced through the people of God. There were a number of people that, like, is it really worth it? Is it worth it for my children? What's going to happen to them? So I will, for the sake of my children, I will bend the knee. And that has happened before. And as we see related to the prophecies on the day of the Lord, it will happen again. Uh, yes, uh, Deborah. You have a comment or a question? I, I used to be so scared when I was a new Christian and I read all this about Eric, Anna, and I remember a discussion we had. I remember um, John Schallard, Kathy Schallard had it, and I was, oh, I was just sick to my stomach. Oh, my God. You know, what would you do? I mean, here's my son. He's a little boy. I'm a new Christian. And you hear that prophecy about, you know, uh, in Revelation, if you don't bend, you don't really get your head cut off. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I pray for parents today to really be close to God because um, at, at the threat of that, I mean, that's what the enemy does. And so, I mean, I, a person really has to be, a, a, you know, in control of what they see and what the, what's going on because, I mean, I don't, I don't know how that happens. I mean, in, in these third world countries, uh, we have no idea. I mean, you just threaten our gasoline or our, some our food, huh? Or our, our toilet paper, per se. You know, people were, oh, God, don't take away my toilet paper. Oh, my goodness. Right, Talking right? about an existential crisis. Remember I remember being, seeing people act like animals yanking toilet paper out of your hand. But, you know, but that is what the gossip and the telecommunication now is that, you know, we are fighting against each other. Nobody has to go out. A president, all they got to do is put it out on the network and watch us fight. So, I mean, we really have to start getting a hold of each other and finding some way of communicating because, you know, it's frightening to think that, oh, my gosh, you know, if we don't ban, bend our knee to uh, whatever is coming down the pike, what, what, you know, well, are we willing to lose our lives? I mean, because other countries are prepared for that. We are simply not. No, they've been, it, it goes back to a passage that we talk about quite often in chapter one of James because how do you get ready for that when you consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds that's how you get ready and it talks about that when these things come upon you ask for wisdom ask for wisdom how you can stand through it because there's going to come times where it's going to become more and more difficult to stand. So what are you able to do? Are you able to stand until the end? Well, that is not something that becomes very easy to do. No, 
you have to test it. You have to be strengthened. Heaven strengthens you throughout time on this. <laughs> so one of the things that Yeshua was emphasizing about this, this idea of not leaving the people stranded and reminding them there during a celebration of the festival of dedication is a passage from John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There it is, a very similar language to what we were talking about there. No one is going to snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So thus, when you're talking about the good shepherd, the good shepherd that is coming into the people of Israel, this is not something that the good shepherd is going to let people go, to just kind of drop out of either neglect or forgetting or just inconvenience. Those are the things that we fall victim to. We get distracted, tired, weary, whatever. That is not the loyalty, the brotherly love, the familial love that is formed between heaven and earth. And so when we think about this particular remembrance here of what we're commemorating here with Shabbat Nachamu or the uh, Sabbath of comfort, and we look back to the Tisha B'Av or the ninth day of the fifth month, which is the day when you had two temples destroyed temple under solomon's temple taken out by babylon and then you had the temple there rebuilt <laughs> added onto aggrandized by herod destroyed by rome both on the same day so thus that remembrance there of this so when you think about what kind of a loss is this for the for the temple now, for the centric temple life of Israel, this is a disaster because where, what is the temple supposed to be? It is called Makom or the place. It is called Hamishkan, the dwelling. It is called the tent of the testimony. It is called the place where God puts his name there, where he puts his reputation. He puts all of what his reputation is in the world is into that one place. Not going to be anywhere, this and that and the other. He centralizes and says, this is where it is going to be. Now for those generations to see it up in flames, flattened, nothing left. Yes just become a wasteland. What, what then would the people of God do? Because this is a focal point of a huge section of our Torah. Remember we were going through the last <laughs> several chapters of Exodus and then into Leviticus, talking about the building of it and this and that, and we were in Numbers, and it goes about the ordering of it. All, everything is surrounded about this place, the place. That place, the Makom, 
and then destroyed out of service. That's a, now you can see why Tisha B'Av is an absolute disaster. How that, but one of the things that we have the promise in is that we have, when the Mashiach said, you tear down this temple, and in three days I'm going to build it up again. Say the first chapter of John, that the word became flesh and tabernacled, skinued with us, pitched his tent, the tabernacle, with us. So this place where the Lord has put his name remains. So whether we see it there or not. So thus we can look toward Yerushalayim and look toward with the hope that this will be restored again. But we have a great high priest. We have the great temple of the Lord still in operation to this particular day. The one that cannot be destroyed, cannot be destroyed no matter what the adversary will throw at it. Yes, death, where is a sting? The grave could not have any victory over this temple. So thus, when we look to this, we say, when we get this message from heaven to cling to the Lord, just cling to the Lord, do not fall off, do not drop off, because God is not going to let you go. He's not going to let me go. not going to let us go. We can fight like crazy to make him let go of us, but he's not going to let go. So that hopefully is a great bit of encouragement, even when we think of a somber remembrance here of these massive destructions of the temple. All right. Any last uh, thoughts before we close things out here? Uh, yes, uh, Tammy. I don't know that if you knew this when you chose this song to kind of riff off of, but the inspiration for this song is actually Exodus 17. It, so let me read it. But it does tie into this because it ties into particularly with Joshua. Yes. It um, starts with Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. It says that Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand myself on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses had held his hands up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat upon it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then, Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So the key to this, in a lot of ways, is that when the Lord told Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. Because Joshua is in the thick of battle. You know, and going back to the, even the lyrics of that song that we were listening to earlier, 
It talks about um, this is the correlation of salvation and level um, salvation and love. I should say, don't drop your arms. Um, so it's that you know Moses, you know, is praying over Joshua because going back to the um, verse verse of it, it says, "So self-absorbed, you seem to ignore the prayers that are already coming out." So Joshua's in the heat of battle. He doesn't know the prayers are going on until later when God tells Moses, tell Joshua what was really going on. Because Joshua has one impression of what's going on because he's in the thick of battle. But Moses up on the mountain, Aaron and her, they could see what was really going on. And it wasn't until later when Moses told Joshua what was really going on that it could strengthen Joshua's faith, not only for what he had to suffer through Amalek, but what he would have to go through and suffer, what, 20, 30 years later in the promised land. So that is kind of the point of a lot of this is that we are in the thick of the now and we don't know the prayers of our parents and our grandparents and maybe even our 10th great grandparents that are the reason that we are here now. We have no idea, but God does. And so rather than dwelling upon you know, the struggles and the things that we're going through, we need to look up and don't forget those prayers. Don't let go. Don't drop our arms. Don't fall away. That's right. Because that is the one. He is the one who's going to lead you in to the land. You just cling, cleave to, hold on. Yes, uh, Christine. Thank you, Tammy, for saying that. Also, because the spirit of, uh, yeah, who was it? The bad guy, Amalek, yeah. So the spirit of Amalek, you know, we are still fighting, right? There's Amaleks in every generation. And so, um, th- yeah, that was really good just to, for Moses to say, for God to say to Moses, write this down for him. Yeah. Yeah. Because, really you know, you think about, he could get wrapped up in thinking, I'm the one who did this. Right. But to remind him as he's going into the land, no, the Lord was the one who was fighting. So when he says, I am going to fight for you, so he can remember what the Lord did before. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O, halal dot info.